Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 121, Revelation. The Spirit and the Bride say come. And in this episode, we are going to look at Revelation 22, verses 17 through 21. And this actually will take us all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. And what a journey it's been. Um, It has been far more episodes than I ever intended on doing when I thought about the book of Revelation, although I did know it would take us many, many months and many, many episodes to get through the book. But this is a very fitting passage to conclude the book and even to conclude the Bible. And so I would like to take the time to walk through these several verses point out a passage from the Old Testament where I think John is drawing these concepts from and then take a look at an idea from the New Testament that Jesus picks up on and then to equip us as the church to recognize the type of posture that God has and that Jesus embodies and that he calls his church to embody and that being one of welcome and of grace and of invitation to come. And so that's really what I want to do in this final episode on the book of Revelation. And so let's just jump right into it. Before we begin this week's episode, at least with the passage that I intend to talk about, I just wanted to say a couple words about the podcast Unbinding the Bible. Uh, Many of you started this podcast way back in the beginning with me, um, September 20th of 2018. That actually marks my 40th birthday, which was the launch day for this podcast. And it took me several months of working through themes that I wanted to address before it finally dawned on me that a lot of my thinking has actually been shaped by the book of Revelation. And so what a good place for us to go, especially since... In terms of confusion in the Bible, um, there probably aren't too many places that need unbound more than a book like Revelation. And so I have had just a blast with you all. Um, It has been uh, quite a long journey, as I already said in the introduction. I I didn't really know how long it might take to work my way through. Of course, you know there have been several sermons sprinkled throughout, which I thought might be relevant to the series, as well as some by the book episodes, some of them very relevant to Revelation. Others I just stuck in because they were topics that interested me and I wanted to share them with you. But jumping into the podcasting world has been a lot of fun for me. And I have a good friend who does a podcast, um, Tim Gombas. Many of you might remember him from the drama of Ephesians, the very first by the book episode that we had, probably the longest one I did, but it was one of the most fun for sure. But Tim says a lot on his podcast that his podcast is just for him and he'll get critiques. People will give him suggestions, tell him what they like or don't like about his podcast. And he laughs, sort of says it tongue in cheek, but sort of says it seriously that he doesn't really care. Um, His podcast is for him and he does it to work out his own thoughts. And maybe I've mentioned that before on the podcast. I'm not entirely sure But that's been something pretty liberating for me. I used to think that I really needed to have something polished and well put together and, um, you know, have it be a a great reflection of my 
having worked through every concept with, with, you know, absolute precision. And that's just not me. So I've really enjoyed you all being listeners on the podcast to give me feedback. Not, not again, not because I want to change what I do on my podcast, but because it lets me know how are these things landing on you? How are they sitting with you? And you've interacted with me and that has been life giving to me. And But I did jump into the podcast in September of 2018 with not a lot of understanding about how podcasts work, um, nor did I have a lot of understanding about the amount of work that I would feel like putting into the podcast. Um, I, I do want this podcast to be coherent. I want the various pieces of it to flow together. I want it to be kind of a a body of work, I guess, if you put it in that way, that will be helpful, that will make sense, that will build on itself. And so I've just attempted to do these kinds of things as we've gone through. And certain weeks, I put a lot of time and energy and thought into exactly how I'm going to craft um, each episode. And one of the things that I did not notice and didn't pay attention to when I began was number one, how much work might go into it. But number two, that many podcasters do what they call seasons and they have portions of the year where they are putting out an episode every week or if they do a, a, you know, every other week episode or, or some people do two episodes a week and some people have editors that work for them and others have people who promote their podcast on the side and everybody has a different situation and it's a lot of fun. Well, going all the way back to the beginning, even in Genesis and looking at the Lord's, you know, Sabbath day rest that he takes on the seventh day to sit back and enjoy all that he has done. I am feeling after over two and a half years of the podcast, I am feeling the need for some rest myself. And some of that is just because it's very time consuming to put together episodes week after week and i looked back and i and i saw some plenty of times when i i would get stressed out i would be cramming on a wednesday which it's a wednesday right now but in order to put this together so that i could have an episode for you on thursday and i've been very very happy to do it but i realized even in terms of the way the lord has made the world and the way he's made me having periodic breaks having rest times that extend beyond just a week or two off at Christmas um, is something that is really common in the podcast world. And hey, even if it wasn't common, this podcast is still for me. And I'm glad you're listening in as I'm working out my thoughts. But I look back over 30 plus months straight of doing an episode every single week. And I realize that's a lot. And I have finally come to a place where I'm not as connected to putting together such a polished, flawless, nobody needs a break. I need to support, give my supporters something to listen to every week. And I, and I love doing that and I really want to. But I think for my own spiritual refreshment and for my own um, way of recovery and for an opportunity to read some things that I've been wanting to read for quite some time without feeling like I needed to take notes on them to interview the author a month after I read the book and and on and on and on, I realized that the podcast very easily can take on a life of its own. And and that's a positive thing. 
but I also want to put in good boundaries for my own health and for the health of my family and the health of our church that I'm able to do other things that, that call for my time. And so the reason why I'm just sharing all of this with you is because this will be the last episode for several weeks, um, perhaps a few months. Um, I have not really investigated exactly what I'm going to do next. Um, I don't know exactly how much time I will want to just take a rest and take a break. I don't want to take a break from you. So please feel the need or feel free rather to email me or reach out or ask me questions or one thing I'd I'd like to hear from listeners, particularly as we wrap the book of Revelation up, is what were the one or two things that you have taken away from the book of Revelation that have begun a transformative work already in your own heart and life and church involvement and community life? Um, You are all so different and so awesome, and have so many different stories, and you're all in different places, and we're rallying around Jesus's words to us in the book of Revelation, but we all approach those words and that life-giving message differently. And so I'd love to hear from you. I I don't want to take a break from you. I'm just going to take a break from producing something new every single week. And I know part of what made the podcast... um, never burdensome, but just something that was a continual call for me to bring my preparation and put in the work and, and you know, offer something to you was the fact that we committed ourselves to going through a book of the Bible. And so I didn't feel faithful to the book if I skipped over huge sections and just wrapped it up in the middle of the book. But maybe when I come back, I, I might have different topics that we address, or if there are things that you would like to, to discuss. Many of you have way better ideas than I do. So feel free to send those to me, email me, call me, text me, find me on Facebook, where, however, wherever, whatever, and recommend things. And, and I'll pray through them because not, not every idea will resonate with me, but I bet many of them will. And I'm, I'm, I'm just as eager to learn as all of you are. And so I invite you into that process with me. But I just wanted to let you know that I am going to take a Sabbath rest from the podcast, maybe in proportion to the amount of work I've done. And I I don't turn this into too legalistic of an idea, but if the Lord created in six days and rested on the seventh, then for every six days of work, he takes a day off. Well, I've done this podcast for 30 straight months, and if you divide that by five or by six... You come up with five months worth of a Sabbath that would be very nice tack on to the end of that. I don't know if that means I'm going to take five months off and I won't see you until October. I don't know that or or November. Um, I don't know that. I just know that when it comes time to take a rest that that I I need one. And um, it's no, no reflection on... The fact that I don't like the podcast, I have no intentions of stopping the podcast. I am just putting the brakes on and, and taking a rest and trusting that um, Jesus will keep us all together in some way, shape, or form and bring us all back when when I resume. So um, again, this might be a time for some of you who didn't have a chance to catch up on old episodes or some of you won't even hear this message for several months because you're 20 or 30 episodes behind and maybe this will work out perfectly for you. You'll you'll get up to this episode and by the time you hear it, 
I will have started up again and, and it'll be great for you all. But for those who are listening to this in real time, um, there will be several several weeks, probably a couple months when you won't hear um, or you won't see a new episode released. Uh, but don't lose heart. There are plenty of episodes already. You could go back and re-listen to some that were your favorites. There are so many other great podcasts out there that maybe this is a chance for. You only have time to listen to one a week. Well, great. Now you can ramp up and encourage and support someone else who has a podcast and you might find them way better than mine and, and more engaging and talking about different things and then send me a note telling me about what you're learning there and that would be that would be a lot of fun too. So I think what I'd like to do then is just to read our passage and make a few observations about it as we kind of wrap up this particular episode in this particular series in Revelation. But I've titled this episode, as you know from the intro, The Spirit and the Bride Say Come. And that actually comes right out of verse 17, which is the beginning of our passage. And so allow me just to read these verses, um, verses 17 through 21, and then I'll make a few observations about them. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Now, as I said in the intro, that's just a beautiful and very fitting way to end the book of Revelation. Um, just this invitation of the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. In verse 20, Jesus jumps in and says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Um, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And then John greets us, you know, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. So what John is actually doing here, and I, and I kind of skipped over this part just as I was repeating what I had just read, but John gives a warning that, that everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And I um, have been in context before that like to apply those words, generally speaking, to the whole Bible and try to identify, hey, if somebody adds to the words of the Bible, if anybody takes away from the words of the Bible or minimizes doctrines that they don't love or that they don't believe are true, that, that's not a fair representation of what John is saying. John, John is explicitly talking about the words of the prophecy of this book, which all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear them and who keep what is written in them for the time is near. And, and we have talked a lot about that. You know, so John is writing a book, again, uh, this book of prophecy. Um, twice he says it when he talks about the prophecy of this book 
and then the book of, of, uh, or, um, I'm sorry, the words of this book of this prophecy. So he kind of inverts the terms, but we've talked around this quite a bit and we've talked directly at it. And that is that in Revelation 19.10, um, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so I know the way I was taught about this growing up was, oh yes, the words of the prophecy, all these predictions that John is making, if you think these predictions aren't going to happen, well, then God's going to judge you according to these plagues that are described that you also don't think are going to happen. And if you take away from these things or you add to them, God's going to remove you. You know, he's going to take away your opportunity to share in the tree of life and in the holy city. Well, I, I want us to grasp for just a second if the words of the prophecy of this book is the testimony of Jesus then we are very interested in reading the book of Revelation for how it highlights the person of Jesus. We're interested in reading the book of Revelation for what the Spirit wants to do in transforming the bride into a picture of Jesus. We're interested in the people who can hear whose idolatrous ways have been set aside and who are fully open and fully prepared to receive the testimony of Jesus throughout the book of Revelation as the embodiment of the prophecy, quote unquote, that John is writing about. And so what is really important, I think, is to highlight the fact that this Jesus saying, I am coming soon, And then John responds with, Amen, come Lord Jesus. It's this request that he would come. And yet this is the last verse or the last two verses of the Bible, not just so that the Christians here can say, oh yes, I sure hope Jesus comes. I want Jesus to come. If Jesus would just come back, we could leave this place, we could leave behind all the mess that is this place and await the judgment that God is bringing upon it. That would be adding to the words of the prophecy of this book. Because in Revelation, we are not told to wait for Jesus' return so that we can escape this place. His return is bringing his presence and the holy city, the new Jerusalem, which is adorned like a bride, down to the earth to restore everything that is here. And so this is why when John ends the book in Jesus's words here of surely I am coming soon. And then John says, come Lord Jesus, we've got this call to come, which is not merely the Christians calling for Jesus to come and for Jesus telling the church that he is coming. But there are three times the word come is used at the beginning of our passage, not at the end. And here's what it says at the beginning The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Now here we have a different picture. We're not told explicitly by John who the the bride and the spirit are inviting to come. We don't know if this is Jesus. We don't know if this is someone else. We don't know until we get to the end of verse 17 and we realize that they're not just saying the word come like into the void, but John also adds, let the one who is thirsty come. 
So come here is a verb. It's an action. It's an invitation to the one who is thirsty. And then John says, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Now, this phrase, without price, is something that the Old Testament speaks about. And I'm going to get to that in, in just a second, but I, I, I realized that I'm, I'm, I was kind of skipping over something here in my, in my mind. John attaches for us at the beginning of verse 17, the spirit and the bride, as well as the one who hears. Now, if you go all the way back to chapters 2 and chapter 3, repeated seven times in each of the portioned um, segments of this letter written to each of the seven churches, the letter, the specific address to each church ends with, he who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And it's fascinating because Jesus is the one speaking, this one standing in the midst of the seven lampstands. And yet at the end of each address, we're told not what Jesus says to the churches, but what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is a powerful demonstration, I believe, of the way um, revelation works and uh, therefore any biblical revelation, but also the book of revelation. And that is that when Jesus speaks, he does so through his Spirit. And this is vitally important to understand because now you don't have the Spirit telling the bride something. You have the Spirit joining the bride, inviting people to come. John then adds another qualifier in addition to the Spirit and the bride, and he says, let the one who hears say, come. And so what I love about this passage that we're looking at in the last five verses of the book of Revelation is that not only does Jesus promise the church that he is coming, but he invites the church in along with the spirit and those who hear to also voice the words of come outward. So Jesus voices to the church, I am coming for you. And then he wants his church to posture themselves to be ready to offer that same invitation of come, come to the waters, come drink of the water of life without price. This is the position that the church is in. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. The churches in Revelation is now seen as the bride. And so the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Now, as I said, this word without price is something that actually comes from the book of Isaiah chapter 55. And I would like to just read for you the first nine verses. Um, the very first verse I'm going to read will sound vaguely, um, will sound um, strikingly similar to the verse that I just read from Revelation 22. But then I want to read the remainder of that passage and um, focusing in on verses 7, 8, and 9. And I think they will be familiar to you if you are Um, if you are a little familiar with the Old Testament. So here's what Isaiah 55 says. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, do you hear the symbols? Um, the, The repeating of the word come 
and this um, idea of without money and without price. Um, it's something that is priceless, but it's also something that cannot be acquired by money. Uh, money is an exchange of goods for something of equal or lesser value. Well, there is no purchasing of the water of life. The water of life is a gift freely given by Jesus. It cannot be purchased. And so those who have wealth are at no more of an advantage in gaining the water of life than those who are poor and have nothing. Why? Because the nothing that they have is more than enough to buy this water. And so again, Isaiah's words, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. I mean, it's hilarious, right? He who has no money cannot buy something. Well, he can if what he's coming to buy costs nothing. So come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. And a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are my way, nor, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, as I said, you'll recognize the, the first verse there. It sounds a lot like Revelation 22. But getting into this verses 7, 8, and 9, let the forsake, wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Have you ever heard that verse from Isaiah 55, verse 8? My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. And the question I want to pose is why will the Lord abundantly pardon those who do not deserve it? Well, because his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. You see, we would never extend compassion the way the Lord intends to extend it. But according to Isaiah 55, thankfully, the Lord is not like us. He doesn't think like us and he doesn't act like us. He has far more compassion than we will ever have. And so it simply will not do, as I have heard argued more times than I can count, to quote Isaiah 55.8 when faced with some theological or philosophical conundrum in God and chalk our confusion about the way he acts up to him being so vastly different than we are. Isaiah 55.8 is not some trump card we play when we are up against some unexplainable attribute of God. 
The attribute being addressed in the passage is not unexplainable. We know what compassion is. What's so foreign to us is how eager God is to showcase it. His ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts because he sees infinitely more value in other human beings than we do. You see, the context in which the Lord says his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts is explicitly in a passage demonstrating his infinitely superior compassion toward people. This is the posture of the Lord toward the nations. This is the posture of the Lord toward the wicked. This is the posture of the Lord toward the unrighteous in his thoughts and in the wicked in his ways or in his actions. And in the final verses of the book of Revelation, when John repeatedly drops the word come, he's hearkening back to this passage in Isaiah chapter 55. The spirit and the bride say, come, who are they speaking to? They're speaking to those who are already not part of the bride. Let the one who hears say, come, who is that person speaking to? Speaking to those who don't have ears to hear, who are filled with idolatrous ways, which all throughout the Old Testament is a clear indication of somebody who has stopped up their ears because they're worshiping idols with ears, but can't hear and eyes, but can't see and mouths, but don't speak. And then John says, and let the one who is thirsty come. This one is directly from Isaiah 55. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. As Isaiah 55, 1 says it again, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Buy, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is the posture of the Lord. It is one of invitation. It is one of grace. It is one of compassion. It is one that desires every person, the wicked, the unrighteous, the wayward, the broken, to come to him and drink freely from the water of life that you can never afford, but will be offered to you freely. And in verse 17 of Revelation 22, John is addressing what the what the spirit now does in joining Jesus and what the bride does in joining the spirit. It is one unifying entity of welcome, of embrace, of posturing ourselves in such a way that people want to come and receive what we have to offer. It reminds me, honestly, of Luke 14, where Jesus tells the parable of the great banquet. And maybe you remember this parable, maybe you don't. He's speaking to his own religious leaders who, quite honestly, were wishing to shut the gates in the face of others and not really want to welcome them in. And he tells many, many people to come to this feast and several of them make excuses for things in their lives that are too important. Jesus, no doubt, has in mind some of these religious leaders who have matters that some of them are religious, some of them are uh, worldly, that, that um, take precedence over their desire to do what he says and to come into his celebration. And so we are told, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. And then he goes on and he talks about 
um, or Jesus does. He says, another says, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I need to go and examine them. Please let me be excused. Somebody says, I married a wife. I cannot come. So the servant reports these things to his master. And then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. You know, when I hear Jesus use the word compel, I think a lot about what he's talking about here in Revelation 22. It's an invitation. But for Jesus, who isn't just standing aloof and is saying, well, yeah, come if you want, but if you don't, you know, I'm thinking of the offer being compelling, being an offer that those who are not currently part of the gathering would see the purpose of the gathering as something compelling, something that would draw you in, something that would make you look at your own life and what you do or don't have and see in the kingdom something of far greater worth, something that would compel you, that would deeply, deeply motivate you to come into the kingdom. And I don't know every church and every Christian who attends these churches and every pastor who is attempting to faithfully lead his or her congregations. But one thing I know is that throughout the, the, the church in America, I think we're kind of in a place where we're struggling a little bit because I'm not sure that the posture of all the Christians and the posture of all the churches is one of compelling people to come in. In fact, I have seen far more times than I care to count churches who see themselves as a bit self-justified and self-complacent regarding how they have taken the proper steps to come into the church But woe unto those who live life their own way and do life in their own way without a care for God or apparently for anybody else. And I've watched Christians, well-meaning, you know, loving people be very swift to judge those outside the church. And it's almost as if we see in ourselves um, superior positioning and are Uh, feel very justified and very comfortable under the name of faithfulness to God or biblical fidelity or something to judge those who are outside the church or to think that it is our job or our calling to critique those who are outside the church and to point out their waywardness. This is again why I've wanted to repeat, and I believe I have done it enough anyway, into the book of Revelation to remind you and to remind myself that the book of Revelation is written to the churches. It's not written to Babylon or to Rome or to the world. It's written to the church. And the church is and can fall prey to the same idolatries, ideologies, beastly outlooks on life that the world falls prey to. But Jesus calls his people to repentance Because they are the ones who have received his compassion and grace and are on sure enough footing for them to handle the appropriate response known as repentance. The Bible 
is not written to people who have not first experienced the grace of God. If, if it was, we would basically be entering into relationship with God based upon what we do, but it isn't. It's based upon what he's done. But what do you do for the group of people who don't know what he's done, who've never experienced his love and his grace and his acceptance and his embrace in their lives first? You can't start by just telling them what the Bible tells everybody to do and assume he's talking to them. He's not. He's talking to his own people, the people who have been rescued by him, the people that he has set free, the people that he has shown himself to and then called us to a standard that effectively lives that out. And so here in Revelation, he is telling them that he is coming or here in this passage in in Luke, he's telling them, compel them to come in, show them and make them want to be a part of who you are and what you have. Now, I have no way of knowing, but I'm pretty darn sure that nobody who feels judged or condemned will ever feel compelled to be a part of that gathering. I think we have a decent amount of repentance to do, quite frankly. Um, the testimony, um, I guess it in, in John, uh, in Revelation twenty two twenty where it says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. So this is he who testifies to these things. What is Jesus testifying to? Well, he's testifying to the love of the Father, and he's testifying to his love for us by the way he self-sacrificially laid down his life for us. He's now inviting us in partnership with his spirit to embody that same reality for the world. He's doing for us and has done for us what he now is asking us to do for the rest of the world, but it always begins with Jesus. That's always the biblical pattern. God, ultimately expressed through the person of Jesus, self-sacrificially lays his life down for us, unites himself to us, forgives us of our sins, lavishes grace and mercy and hope upon us, and then invites us in to partner with him in turning around and doing the same thing for our neighbors, for our enemies even. This is what the book of Revelation is at pains to get across from beginning to end. And that's why John puts in this warning that if you add or subtract from these words, what are these words? This testimony The prophecy of this book, the book of this prophecy, the testimony of Jesus, testifying, bearing witness, declaring that this is who God is. He is the person of Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain. And so for our churches today, our church's motives, our church's posture needs to be one of number one, asking Jesus to work deeper deeper and deeper in our own hearts as a community so that we can more faithfully express in our own community relationships what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like. And secondarily, we see that others might be compelled by that radical life of love that we have first embraced ourselves such that it compels them to want to join it and be a part of something that is truly otherworldly. I am afraid that that is not the posture that the bride has typically adopted. 
in the New Testament, this is the position of the, of the church. But in our current context, I see far more churches self-congratulating um, their positions on certain moral issues and being very swift in their judgment of other people based upon what they believe. That to me is not compelling. It doesn't compel me to want to join that group at all. In fact, in many circumstances over my life, I've been a part of those groups. And there are many, many times in those relationships where I actually want to distance myself from the church. I just want to speak honestly. I'd rather speak honestly and maybe say something that's not as glamorous as it might otherwise be than try to wax eloquently to you and, and, and be lying through my teeth. There are times when I do not see the church embodying the realities that Jesus has called us to. That doesn't discourage me. It just reminds me that we need to repent more. We need to see that that's not in fact the case, that we're not doing exactly what he's called us to do. But Revelation 22 ends with this giant invitation. And this is the posture of heaven. This is the posture of Jesus. This is the posture of the spirit and of the bride and of the ones who can hear. And I find that to be a very compelling invitation myself. Because if John is addressing the spirit and the bride saying, come, and the one who hears saying, come, then we can flash all the way back to the beginning of the book, knowing that John is fully aware of the fact that some of the people in these churches to whom he is writing cannot hear. Their ears are stopped up. They have been worshiping a God of their own making, a God of wood and stone and, and bronze that cannot see or hear or, or talk. They imagine him to be the real God and they worship him in the way that they live. And John says that you are actually deaf. You do not have ears to hear. You do not have eyes to see. You do not see that the God you claim to worship has actually completely and most fully revealed himself in the person of Jesus, the lamb who was slain. And so any ideas people have of aggression or violence or um condemnation or judgment of those outside our gathering are not embodying the person of Jesus. And it is impossible to be quote unquote worshiping God when you are acting and believing in ways contrary to how God has revealed himself to be. It's amazing to me how people will walk into church gatherings and will be getting into catfights and arguments and conflicts regarding the way worship should look in a church gathering and completely forget for a time that to be worshiping the Jesus who gave up everything for his enemies cannot possibly be happening while you are holding on to everything and turning those who oppose you into your enemies. It, it, it's an absolute contradiction. It, it, it actually doesn't exist in the real world. People like to think it does, but it's just a really a, a fake reality. John is inviting us to become a body, a bride that compels people to want to come in. 
And I know that means not everybody's going to come, and I don't think that that's really supposed to be our concern. Our concern is to most, most faithfully and most fully live out the kingdom realities that Jesus has called us to. But the posture we have toward those outside our fellowship is to be one of compassion that is so foreign to the way people normally extend compassion that the Lord has to insert this you know, qualifier, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. My thoughts and ways are so much higher than yours, not because you're supposed to debate that I know some philosophical conundrum that you can't otherwise figure out. And so you just, and I'm sorry, I've just heard this too many times not to say something about it. So many times in the church, well, we don't understand why God picks some and not others. I mean, I've had these conversations with those who hold to Calvinist positions. Um, Why does God elect some and not other people? And I've heard people say, well, his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. In other words, you can't know why God can, can elect some and not others. That's a good thing in God's mind. It's just that your mind is too feeble to understand that. Now, let me tell you why that is an abominable use of Isaiah 55. To say that God elects some and does not elect others, which I'm sorry, just has no biblical foundation. I I know people have inserted what that means into these passages, but this is not what the New Testament or the Old Testament portrays. But even if you disagree, let me tell you why Isaiah 55 is a terrible verse to quote when you're having this conundrum. And that is the philosophical category that you can't wrap your mind around That is not what's being addressed in Isaiah 55. The idea to people, the reason why people buck against the idea that God would elect some and not elect others is because that makes God sound heartless. People hate that idea because it makes God sound heartless. It makes him sound cold and distant to all of these thousands potentially millions of people that for whatever crazy reason in their mind, right, he didn't elect them. That, that, that's the way the conversation goes. But what Isaiah 55 is describing is the exact opposite of that. Isaiah 55 has the Lord declaring he is going to be so compassionate to the wicked and so compassionate to the unrighteous that people are flabbergasted that God is too kind to the rotten people. He's too gracious. He's too merciful. And what does Isaiah say? God says in Isaiah 55, 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. How can I be so much more compassionate than you? Because I'm not like you. I don't think like you. I don't judge like you. I'm not overly critical of what another person does without knowing the full story any more than you would want me to be overly critical of you without taking into account your life story. Isaiah 55 is not giving us some vague general verse that we can rip out of context and rubber stamp onto every philosophical and theological conundrum that we can't otherwise figure out. God is not permitted in these discussions to be a tyrant 
He is, in fact, so gracious and so compassionate that people feel he's gone overboard the other direction. That's when Isaiah 55, 8 comes in. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. And I think today what the church needs more than anything is a huge dose of the fact that the Lord himself embodied most perfectly in Jesus is more gracious than people are, not less. We are so quick to want to make sure, well, God is just and he is, he is these things, but not at the expense of people. He is pro-people. That's what justice means. He is pro-people. He wants the best for people. And he doesn't just limit his best for those who deserve it. So he invites, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. I mean, listen to the invitation. That's what it is. It's an invitation. It's not a threat. Let the wicked forsake his way so that he can come back to the Lord and the Lord can shower him with compassion. What is that implying? It's implying that the power rests with the wicked one. The wicked one can have the best life he desires. He just needs to let go of all the wrong paths he's chosen to get there and find that the Lord will shower him with far more than he could have ever wished for being a wicked person. Compel him. Show him that the path he's chosen is actually richer and more complete and fuller and better by following Jesus than it is following yourself. It's not a threat. We're not out here spewing forth judgment and criticism and condemnation toward the people who don't yet believe. We're inviting them to see that Jesus so much better satisfies their longings than anything they could pursue on their own. And this is why I really do think that the church wants and needs to begin to prepare itself and posture itself as a place where true healing can be found. As a place where compassion and understanding and listening take place. Where people feel valued, no matter how different they are, no matter whether the, the people in the church can feel like they're condoning the lifestyles of immoral people, if they just take the moment to listen to them, people need to know that Christians of all people are compassionate, considerate, respectful, willing to listen and seek to understand. They need to know that we see them as real people and that we are inviting them in through a compassionate, respectful, listening posture into a way of being in the world that would far greater satisfy their longings and desires than anything they can pursue outside the kingdom. That's what it means to compel people to come in. Show them that life in the kingdom can more satisfy their desires than life outside it. Not by means of threat, not by means of judgment or condemnation, but by means of invitation. The spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price.
Well, we made it. We made it all the way through the book of Revelation. And if you've been with me every episode through the book, just a big congratulations to you. You have held on for quite a long time and it's just what an accomplishment. So as I shared in the uh, beginning of the podcast, just uh, I would love to hear from you. If you could give me in some form just one, two things that really stood out to you, maybe the first time you had heard something like that from Revelation or what what this going through this book has done to begin the work of transformation in your own life or in your family's life or in your community or small group or something like that. I, it, I think it would be exciting to just see what Jesus is up to in the kingdom with all of you. And I'm um, very thankful just for the chance to work through this. It's, um, it's been an awesome, an awesome adventure. And again, took a long time, but I think it was worth it. And I'm really thankful for each of you. So don't, don't be shy in these weeks or, or months where I'm taking a little bit of a break. Again, feel free to reach out to me through email or text or find me on Facebook or Instagram. You can reach me at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. I'm, I'm also on Instagram at the Unbinding the Bible podcast. That's another place where I might post some things or on Facebook, just Joshua Yoder there. I don't have an actual podcast Facebook page, but you can find me there. And thank you so much to those of you who have been faithfully supporting the podcast um, on a monthly basis with your finances. Um, That has really been an encouragement to me and it's allowed me to purchase some resources and purchase some things just to invest in over over the long haul for 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 the kingdom and for our family and just our church and and other things on the podcast so thank you so much for continuing to tune in if you've made it this far and have been encouraged at all along the way if you would leave me a rating or a review or both on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these on that will help others to find the podcast and um, share with a friend too. Just remind people, hey, it's not that unbinding the Bible is over. We're just going to take a little bit of a break. And so I, I trust that you'll be able to relay that information out. I do have several more by the book conversations um, in the works. They're, they're not recorded yet. Haven't even finished their books. But there are just too many good things, too many good people to talk to and to learn from um, to just let that go out. So that I will definitely be picking that back up again Um and again, looking to some of you for who have creative ideas of things we could do on the podcast and uh, ways of continuing to, to be an encouragement um, to each of you. So thanks so much for tuning in. And we are signing off on Unbinding the Bible. And I will talk to you when we pick it back up again.